Welcome everybody to the final session of our Spotlight in on Economics week. Um, this is our Ask the Experts session, so we're hoping that this will be able to answer some of those questions that we didn't manage to get round to earlier in the week and couldn't be more timely today um, with the release of um, new data on trade. So I hope our experts have had sufficient time to work out what's going on to translate it all for the rest of us. Let me briefly introduce everybody who's here on the panel, although if you've been following our sessions um, over the week, you will have met them all already. I have with me in, in no particular order, just the order that I took my notes, um, Professor David Bailey, um, who's Professor of Business Economics at Birmingham Business School. Professor Sarah Hall, who's Professor of Economic Geography at the University of Nottingham. Professor no, no, sorry, re, uh, Meredith Crowley, who is Reader of International Economics at the University of Cambridge, and Professor Jonathan Portes, who is Professor of Economics and Public Policy at King's. Thank you all so much for joining us, and I know we have got a huge number of questions um, to put to you, but I thought I would start off with one that perhaps hasn't um, been something that had come through earlier in the week, but is very germane for today, and that's the new data that's come out from the ONS which seems to show a 40% drop, give or take a little bit, um, in exports to the EU in January. And I wondered if you could talk us through that for those of us that haven't had a chance to quite catch up with it this morning. I'll let whoever wants to jump in, jump in and, and take us away with that one. So I, I can take a stab at starting off. So um, the statistics that came in look at UK imports and exports. And they break them down both by whether they're importing or exporting from the EU as well as the not outside the EU. And the statistics are basically horrific in a word. Um, there, as you just said, there was a 40% decline in exports to the European Union in the last um, January 2021 with respect to December 2020. In contrast, sorry, that number 42% is looking at what we call a chain volume measure. So that uses what we call real prices. So it's trying to control for kind of fluctuates, fluctuations in prices over time. In contrast, if we look at UK exports to countries outside the EU, that measure grew by about eight or 9%. So the fall off in exports to the EU was really horrible. Um, we also had a big negative shock of imports coming in from the EU that fell about 28% uh, and imports coming in from outside the European Union also fell about 15%. Now, a couple of things to take, keep in mind when thinking about these monthly numbers, this is looking at the change between January and December. We know having nothing to do with Brexit, that monthly trade is a very volatile measure. So it goes up and down a lot. And so we often think that a more useful measure is to look at three months. And so we take a quarter of the year and we compare the last three months with the three months prior to that. In this case, if we look at that, those numbers are still pretty bad. Um, our exports to the EU in the three months ending in January relative to the three months ending in October, that fell 6%. Um, and if we look at the past 12 months, okay, we also had the COVID shock, but in the past 12 months, our exports to the EU have fallen 13%. I think a couple other important things to keep in mind, this negative news, you know, what we had in the last 12 months is far below what we exported to the EU in 2018. 
It's about 10% less than what we exported to the EU in 2018, less than 10% of what we exported to the EU um, in 2019. So across the board, this is a lot of, of real weakness in the export sector. And I think what we're seeing, I think realistically, even if we think about these three month moving average numbers as being a better way to think about what's coming, there's really nothing positive. Um, on, a, on a happier note, we know that um, going forward, we do think the recession caused by COVID is gonna be ending in Europe and the UK, and that should be a positive contributor both to future growth of all production in the UK and in the EU. So we can maybe think that the end is coming, but um, it's, it's pretty negative. Could I, could I jump in? I mean, I, I would agree very much with that. I think it was, it, you know, we can't read too much into one month, but it was awful. Uh, so awful, but I don't think it's permanent. And we are going to see some sort of bounce back, I think. There are going to be some temporary factors at work in terms of manufacturers, in particular, stockpiling at the back end of the year in anticipation of Brexit. The car industry in January really ran slowly because it was concerned about components coming in. Uh, the customs bureaucracy that firms now face in exporting, they're still struggling to get to grips with. Now, some of those things will improve. So I think we'll see a bit of a bounce back in February. But Meredith is absolutely right. We're not going to really know what the long-term impact of Brexit will, is probably until the end of the year. And in fact, if you think about it, that's what many of us have been saying. We've gone for a kind of hard form of Brexit. That will act as a, a drag on trade and growth in the long term. So the impacts of Brexit are going to be felt over years, I think. And just to give you one little example, we know that manufacturers are struggling with um, filling out the paperwork to get their goods through to customers uh, on the continent. But we've not yet seen the supply chains and the value chains actually restructure. So uh, there's a, a company in Birmingham, GK Automotive, makes drive lines. All the parts come in from across Europe. It's assembled. It's then exported, goes into a car, make them back again. GKN have said they can't actually do that anymore, so they're going to close that plant and the work will be shifted to various European countries to be closer to the end user. So the longer term impact of Brexit on value chains is yet to be clear. So I think it's going to be more of a long term impact on trade. Jonathan or Sarah, did you want to add anything? Any thoughts on those figures from this morning? Um, well, just to say that, I mean, I think David's point is quite important. In some sense, you can, you know, there are sort of three effects we should expect to see. One is the transitional effect, um, the teething problems, um, plus stockpiling, so that will wash out. The, the second is the immediate shock where some things immediately become unviable and stop, like, for example, shipping shellfish to the, uh, to the EU if, uh, if, if it's not allowed in. Um, that's an immediate effect in levels. And then, as David says, crucially, there are things which mount up over time where companies will seek to adjust their processes, but they can't do so immediately once. David gave the example of, of the, the suppliers in the automotive industry. Another example is, is where um, companies have distribution warehouses here that they used to service all of Europe and, and you know, are now looking for where uh, to, to move that distribution warehousing and so on to, to the EU, which we've seen that doesn't happen all at once. So those effects actually will increase over time. Thanks, Sarah. 
Yeah, I'll just add one thing, which is to note that these figures are pro predominantly talking about goods. Um, and a large part of the economy is services and data on services trade is really challenging to get accurately. Um, and so we actually know less in detail, um, particularly in terms of geographical patterns with trading partners about what's going on in services and exports. Although the headlines don't look good, I think it's just worth noting that we're predominantly here talking about, about goods, which is obviously vitally important. Thank you. Maybe I can follow that up then with one of the questions that has come up across the week um, but that seems particularly relevant today um, and it was whether or not the data that we're seeing today is reliable you know how is this impact actually measured and can we rely on this data um, to make these kinds of comparisons and try to assess the the impact of brexit i don't know if anybody wants to start us off with that one um, I'll just say, I, I think the question, so I would just say UK government statistics are incredibly reliable. Um, and I, there should be no question in the minds of anyone in the audience that these are not factual and accurate and a good reflection of what the government is attempting to measure. I think the questioner might have had in mind how predictive is the data from January for the rest of the year? And so how useful a predictor is it? And so that's a different meaning, I think, of reliable. I think that we should not at all question the accuracy of um, UK government statistics because they're done to an extremely high level of quality. Um, there are some data sources arising, such as short-term surveys conducted by industry groups. And so there was one earlier um, in the month, I think, looking at volumes of trade from a particular set of shippers. And this was, you know, an industry group canvassing opinion. That's a little bit harder to know how, you know, useful some of those statistics are. They can be very helpful to businesses in the short run. But overall, I think the issue um, is sort of a repeat of what we kind of just went through. The January statistics in the long run are going to be a bit of an outlier, I think, because they're going to be reflecting a little bit of the stockpiling that took place in November and December. But if we add up November, December, and January as a group, you know, we have what we would call basically no change in exports. You know, so it's very, very flat overall for the UK, but we have a decline in exports coming from the EU. So overall, this is an indicator that things are not good. Um, and so I think what we want to, if we want to do predictions, it's very useful to look at what we would call three months or a quarter of data. And that's how economists, you know, and people working in different um, banks across the UK right now, I think are probably treating these statistics and trying to figure out what's going to happen with the rest of the year. It is of all times and you know the last hundred years extremely difficult to forecast what will happen because we have to do two things we've got two huge shocks hitting the economy at the same time and so one the big thing is we are all very hopeful that the vaccine rollout etc will start to improve real economic activity in the uk but if it doesn't go as well as we're hoping we could hit more bumps in the road and that will cause further problems um and i'll just say that um in terms of services, um, there are statistics for change in services for um, January relative to last December in the ONS release from today. And, and that's not as negative as the goods trade. So the total volume of uh, trade in ex 
export of services and import of services was down in January relative to um, previous periods, but it was only down about 1% for exports and 2.5% for imports. So the effect on service is much more muted in the short run. But in the long run, if we look at what we exported and imported in terms of services in January 2021 relative to the previous 12 months, or I'm sorry, if we compare the 12 months ending in January 2021 to the 12 months ending in January 2020, that's down both on the export and import side by about 20% across the board. So that's that's pretty horrible. But that's largely uh, probably reflecting COVID. Anyone else want to add anything on that point um, about measuring? It picked, uh, Meredith's brought in there one of the questions that has been just kind of constantly spiraling around, I think, every session this week, which is how we actually start to unpack that double shock and, and which one do we think is causing the things we're seeing at a particular time, whether these are COVID effects or Brexit effects. I don't know if anybody wanted to add anything at that. I think we'll probably come back to that later in the session as well, but whether there was anything any specific anybody wanted to add to that at the moment. And I could maybe come in here, Paula, with a couple of examples of, of how entangled those are. So, um, and I agree with, with Meredith in terms of the sort of general headline figures on services, but um, one of the ways in which services are exported is by people traveling from the UK to Europe. Um, so this has actually caused a, a, a getting data on that has actually become hard because usually the ONS uses an international passenger survey to measure that. They've actually stopped that survey due to COVID. So you, you kind of you think Brexit's called a, caused a movement effect in terms of peeping, people being able to travel to sell services. But COVID has then caused an issue in terms of getting accurate data on on that that movement. Then as we come out of the pandemic, if the vaccine programme works well, then business travel will be one area that you would expect to see activity starting in again. Business travel has virtually been in cold storage, although there are exemptions for travel um, in the current um, lockdown. But here again, you see the um, entanglements because that part of the trade and cooperation agreement hasn't really been tested because people haven't been travelling. So as covid potentially comes out of the equation on business travel so Brexit may well um, come in. Just to follow up if I could, the, the other uh, figures out today are on GDP. So um, the UK GDP figures suggest you know a, a contraction of the economy. I forget the exact figures, about 2.9% I think, which considering we'd gone into another lockdown was was far less of a contraction than we had you know early in uh, 2020 but bear in mind and Jonathan will know much more about this I'm sure than, than myself we're still about 10% smaller in the economy than than uh, going back to before the, the crisis hit so Sarah's quite right if the vaccine program goes extremely well it has so far touch what it continues you know, we could see a a relatively rapid bounce back over the next couple of years. Interestingly, beyond that, the um, OBR is forecasting that we then return to slow growth, which is what we were having before uh, COVID hit, and we, we'd been having ever since the, uh, the wake of the global financial crisis. Now, in terms of that slow growth, of course, Brexit will also be having a longer-term drag on the economy. So 
Is it the issue of getting through COVID, the economy recovering from that, and then beyond that, how quickly the economy can actually grow, as well as all those other issues that we've been discussing this week in terms of inequality and levelling up and things. But Brexit is more likely, I think, to have a longer term impact on the economy than COVID is. Jonathan, did you want to add anything? No, I, I mean, I agree with that. In terms of unpicking, I mean, I think um, today's data, although it is very early, does illustrate that, that it will be possible from an economic point of view to unpick at least some of it. You know, Brexit effects will be different from COVID effects. Um, and so um, by the end of the year, as David says, I think we will be beginning to get a, an idea of what the Brexit effect is, and some idea actually of what the long-term impacts of COVID are. And, and you know, these are different things and we will measure them in different ways. The fact that we can't um, export shellfish anymore, um, the fact uh, um, in Sierra's area say that we will do less financial services business with the EU is rather different from the sort of economic effects that we'll see if, for example, um, you know, there is a permanent significant shift to working at home which will also have economic effects, but they'll be quite different ones. And I will hope, I would hope that we as economists will be doing, um, all of us in, in our different ways, quite a bit of work on, on unpicking those different effects. How that plays into sort of what the economy feels like for individuals, how people feel about jobs, wages, economic growth and so on is, uh, is one perhaps for you, Paul, and, and the political scientists. So it's much more difficult to, uh, to analyze. Yeah, I was just thinking that as you were speaking, it, it, I suspect the economists will have some very, very good answers, but whether or not the public hear them or believe them is, is another question altogether, which we'll also need a close eye keeping on. What, we, had, we had the two sessions, um, Wednesday and Thursday, one on populism and one on inequalities, and across both of those panels, questions of levelling up kept, kept recurring. Um, and... I realise that the kind of politics of that is, is outside most of your areas of expertise, but I wondered if there was any sense in the things that you've seen so far about how the impact of Brexit or, or COVID um, is varying regionally and what that might mean for the broader levelling up agenda. Could I come in on, on that one? Um, there's been some really interesting work done through UK and Changing Europe uh, by... Raquel uh, Giazotias and Philip McCann look at the impact of Brexit, which uh, in the longer term, which is given that um, some of the sort of so-called left behind places, uh, you know, in the north, northeast, the Midlands, trade more with Europe in terms of manufactured goods, the impact is likely to be greater. So Brexit is likely to have an impact on some of the more disadvantaged places, which in turn will make levelling up more difficult, just as COVID has had an impact on uh, some uh, very impoverished places, given issues around housing and, and poverty and pre-existing uh, deprivation. So actually, I think the, the, the impact of both is likely to make levelling up much more difficult, uh, which then raises a challenge in terms of what the government is doing in terms of its levelling up agenda. There's been a very interesting debate over the last couple of days about uh, how the government is going to measure um, deprivation and target its levelling up funds so, and some big question marks about why it's not using traditional measures of deprivation but are looking at things like length of car journeys for example 
and essentially have come up with a list of places that are deserving of support, which includes some actually relatively wealthy places, many of many of which, by the way, have Conservative MPs. So uh, I think there needs to be a lot of scrutiny about what the government is doing in terms of how it's measuring which places are deserving of support and where the money will go. Um, I, I agree with that. I mean, I, uh, the, the government did just release these criteria today, but they do look completely bizarre. I mean, the idea that Rishi Sunak's constituency um, is a top priority, whereas um, parts of uh, um, North and East London, just a mile or two from where I live, which have some of the highest rates of poverty and deprivation in the country, um, aren't, um, suggests that the commitment to, to levelling up means I think something very different from what one would uh, what, what one, is, one would assume that it means. Sarah Mansis, do you want to? And can I just yeah, I think um, a key question here is comes back to the point that Jonathan made earlier about what the economy is to a large extent is where you are in the economy and how you experience it. There's not kind of one thing that is the UK economy in, in terms of our everyday lives. And so as soon as you take that seriously, you realise that places like Derby and Crawley, for example, which you wouldn't normally put together in terms of economic terms, you know, share quite a significant risk in terms of the aerospace industry. So I think we really have to trace quite carefully um, the sectoral composition of the UK economy and then understand the different sectoral impacts of both Brexit and COVID, because that's going to be the key to understanding the variegated geographical impacts of, of both of these um, issues. I think for me, the, the important point that I would like to make about the announcement on the levelling up fund, and I agree with the points that have been made, is that it seems to me to be pointing to quite a profoundly different economic geography. So Rishi Sunak talked about his desire for a new economic geography. Um, and for me, one of the interesting things is the scale at which they have proposed the, this new economic geography, which is very much around um, towns and commuter belts, and says much less about some of the areas which have received a lot of policy attention in the past when the UK has tried to grapple with its regional economic inequality. And here I'm thinking about large metropolitan um, cities often very heavily reliant on um, manufacturing. So I think that's another area that I think we need to keep a close eye on as researchers. Can I just follow up? Sorry, I, I want to bring Meredith in there if, she, if you've got things to add on that question, but I just wanted to follow up on that actually. Do you think um, that maybe I don't know quite how to phrase this, but maybe that's almost ahead of the game, perhaps, in terms of thinking about where people are moving to post-COVID and new patterns of working. Um, I'm not sure that I want to give that much credit to, to, to the long-term plan at the moment, but maybe it will work out that way. Uh, that, that could be. I mean, if, if that had been a thought-through approach to policy, it, it would be worth trying. But it's very odd that the government have got in... Uh, their measure how long car journeys take, which is completely divorced from the interesting point they're just making. So I think I think that we, we're going to have to really look at what the government is doing in terms of where it's targeting support. I mean, it's interesting the Public Accounts Committee said that the Towns Fund had, you know, that uh, the, the government had previously used had tended to be concentrated on conservative voting areas. So I think we've, we've kind of gone for a hard form of Brexit, taken back sovereignty, the, the danger here is that we end up with kind of pork barrel politics, in a, in a sense. If you, if you think about what the European structural funds were, 
They were multi-annual programs with very clear ex-ante, ex-post evaluation, quite clear criteria, uh, the partnership elements to that. That's gone. We've now got this levelling up fund, and I think we have to scrutinise very carefully what the government does with it. Sorry, Meredith, I, I added in an extra question there before I got to you. Um, no, that's, that's um, I guess I was just going to say on, on the leveling up thing, I maybe could bring in a discussion of, um, oh, sorry, my dog. Sorry, my dog's going uh, <laughs> We didn't get a COVID puppy, but the, the puppy who's not a puppy anymore is still very noisy. Um, I was just going to say, I thought I could bring in a little bit about reports and tax incentives. Because on the one hand, we talk about leveling up, we're interested in the distribution of government revenues to different you know, localities and what impact that would have on things like infrastructure investment. Another side would be the incentives the government creates for private enterprise to build new factories, create new jobs, et cetera. And so on the one hand, we have in the, the budget a quite aggressive um, system of incentives for investment in new equipment that are national. In some ways, you know, as an economist, that's a very good approach to the how we should treat investment because we do want to raise UK productivity in the long run. It's already been mentioned, either I can't remember if it was Jonathan or David, the fact that we have this productivity problem in the UK. And so one of the ways we think we can get out of that is by having more intense investment, new capital, new equipment, you know, bring ourselves up. And by not by having that as a national policy, you give business the freedom to locate where they think they can have the highest returns. In terms of leveling up, that often means though that businesses want to locate in areas where there's concentrations of high-skilled workers, concentrations of well-educated workers, and that tends not to be in areas that are deprived. So on the other hand, we have this free ports initiative, some of which are located in areas where there's more deprivation. And that has even stronger incentives to stimulate investment by the private sector. So, but I think the, the issue is one of our worries with the Freeport initiative has always been that it will just draw investment from areas just outside the ring of the Freeport into areas of the Freeport. And that's that's really you know a very negative impact for those businesses that have already established themselves outside the Freeport boundary and can be, you know perceived as quite unfair. Um, so, you know, I don't know that we've got, um, I, I do think there does need to be a real private sector component to make leveling up successful, right? So we do need to have some investment, but we also need to make sure that businesses have an opportunity to invest in pure places where they think they can get high returns. Otherwise, um, it's gonna end up being a real waste of, of money across the board. Thank you. Does anybody else want to add anything? Yeah, can I just jump in again? I mean, those are two really interesting points. And if we link it back to some of the comments by Sarah early, we need to understand the sort of sectoral impact. So the government's sort of super deductions policy, which is really very uh, attractive uh, enhanced capital allowances to try and really encourage investment. That's been criticised as being quite an inefficient approach by some, but I think it's really worth trying. And interestingly, whilst it's a spatially blind policy, it might actually have a levelling up benefit in that it will favour capital intensive manufacturing, which tends to be located outside of the southeast. So that, 
that part might be quite good for leveling up. Free ports, we're much more critical about, and there's a terrific UK Changing Europe report around this very recently, very timely as well. Most of the evidence suggests that activity tends to move, what economists call displacement effects, um, and that you, you end up encouraging some activity to shift. Where free ports have worked, it's as part of a kind of more holistic policy mix where you also look at infrastructure, land, uh, skills, and other things. Now, on that, the, the, the danger, I think, is the government seems to be rowing back from this idea of industrial strategy, uh, which previously was pretty much flavour of the month. There had been a lot of work put into local industrial strategies. We are going to still need those, actually. And uh, the part of the danger there as well is that the good work around industrial strategy is that it's no longer a kind of top-down approach, but rather government working in partnership with business, which relates to Meredith's point in a process of finding out what the opportunities and challenges are. Now, if we're, we're pulling back from industrial strategy, there's a real danger that we would go back to top-down giving out of subsidies and grants. That doesn't tend to work very well, actually. Thank you. No one else looks like they've got anything that they're burning to add to that. So I want to move that on along, actually, and, and pick up with that a little bit more, because a lot of the questions we've got coming in today um, are about how all this then relates to climate change, climate action, net zero and so on. And I actually I was thinking as you were talking, using using car journeys as a measure for the levelling up fund perhaps doesn't connect with that very well at all. Um, so I wondered if you might want to say a little bit about, about that, about the things that you think the, the government might be able to do in this regard, whether... Um, Brexit and COVID is going to make that more challenging um, and how and how we might cope with that in a kind of longer term strategy. I don't know who wants to come in first on that one. I'll, I'll kick in again if, if that's all right. <laughs> um, we, this is one of our really big challenges going forward. So we've, we've got levelling up and we've got to get to net zero. We've set a target of 2050 for net zero. Um, I think every four months that goes by is 1% of the time we've got to actually get there. It, you know, so it's hugely important. Now, the government's budget, I think that the third part of the budget, which is kind of like growing back better, was the weakest part of the budget. Um, there were some useful things in there, like a, like a national infrastructure bank, for example, or that only partly replaces the European Investment Bank. But we could have been doing so much more. You know, we could have been rolling out a super fast um, electric charging network system to switch over to electric vehicles. We could have been supporting the development of battery gigafactories to make the batteries to go into cars. So th there's loads of things that we could be doing. There was very little in the men mention in the budget of aviation or agriculture or onshore wind, all the things that we need to be thinking about. So it's, it's that kind of growing back better part of the budget, which you know, it wasn't a disaster, but I thought it was particularly disappointing. We need to be doing much, much more, I think, in terms of really making 2050 doable. And I think we need to start thinking more about taxing stuff we don't like, carbon emissions, uh, wealth, concentrations of wealth, and thinking about how in terms of the recovery from COVID, maybe we could be cutting payroll taxes to encourage firms to take on workers. So you know, if we think ultimately, if, if we're going to get to net zero, carbon costs will go up, energy costs will go up. We'll have to compensate business to remain competitive. 
one way to do that might be to cut payroll taxes. So I think we need to be a lot more imaginative going forward. And in that sense, I think the budget was a bit of a disappointment. Anyone else want to come in on the broader question? Meredith? So I'll just say, I think, you know, what we also have to keep in mind, you know, if we're thinking about a sector like manufacturing, which tends to be more carbon intensive, at the same time that, you know, we're trying to make this transition to more of a carbon neutral production, we're faced with the fact that the cost of doing business with, you know, the largest trading partner has gone up. So precisely when, you know, we're trying to develop this new greener economy, we've got all of the businesses that want to sell their stuff into the EU are facing all kinds of additional paperwork and additional costs. And realistically, you know, there is a concern that as we try to transition production here to be greener, this can put potentially UK firms at a competitive disadvantage relative to other firms in countries that aren't implementing the same types of objectives in terms of, you know, developing a greener economy. And so one of the things here is just to say that at the time we're trying to do this domestically, we also need to be working on collaborative agreements with other countries where we do want to keep, you know, UK firms competitive by having other countries raise their standards at the same time. And I think, you know, you know, it's, a positive thing that the the European Union has already been kind of moving forward in its climate change agenda. I think there's other regions of the world that are important trading partners that aren't as far, you know, out of the gate. And so that's a problem if we want to think about growing UK exports to, you know, the Western, you know, North America and South America. Um, because, you know, if you were already at a disadvantage with regard to Europe now, you're going to, throw on further competitive disadvantages, you know, that that's can be seen as a problem or it should be acknowledged that it's a potential problem. We need to be proactive in how we're going to sort that out, try to give firms a good incentive to invest in cleaner technologies. I mean, I'd sort of overlay both of those with a, with a political small P point, which is that, um, you know, that policy on climate change has always um, been slightly, um, you know, uh, um, schizophrenic, as it were, or, or, or bifurcated because of the divide between the treasury um, and, uh, um, and 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 prime ministers and, and environment secretaries who want to do more. Um, but if you really, really want to um, go to net zero, as David says, you need both to change the structure of the tax system quite a bit. You really need one way or another to put the price of carbon up. And that means doing something in the tax system. And at the same time, you need quite a major, uh, you need a huge amount of investment, most of which will be private, but some of which will be public. And even the private stuff has to be steered pretty heavily by government incentives and regulation. Um, and the treasury is just structurally uncomfortable with all of this. And the fact that Sunak simply basically dodged all these big questions you can you can make a, a reasonable excuse that hey look at the moment the next few months are, are quite enough to be going on with and, and we really focus on that but I think that tension you know that battle still needs to be fought um, and if we are serious about climate change then the treasury is going to have to do 
a, a lot and it's temperamentally just not inclined to do that. So it needs to be told to do that by the, by the Prime Minister and the Chancellor and we'll see whether they're willing to do that or not. And I'll just add one um, small thing which on this, which brings us back um, to the budget, because I think there was one um, element of the budget which took some people by surprise in relation to green finance on the services side, which was the change to the Bank of England's remit to include um, a commitment or a consideration of the government's commitment to net zero by the Monetary Policy Committee um, when they're meeting to discuss um, interest rates. I think that was... Um, caught some people by surprise and um, in in other I think so I think it's important to sort of say that that was one element of the budget which I think is quite helpful in terms of trying to institutionalize and um, green finance within um, policy making and the net zero um, agenda and also it does appear to me that that green finance is one of the areas that the city of London seems to be exploring in terms of thinking about its post-Brexit future. Sarah, that is a absolutely brilliant line <laughs> into the next question I had on my list, which I was going to link to the fact that we've been talking about kind of leveling up and moving things perhaps outside of London, although taking Jonathan's point that there are plenty of places within London that should also be the target of leveling up. Um, one of the questions that's been quite um, quite well voted for is what is the future of the city of London um, post Brexit? And I wondered if perhaps you could talk us through that a little bit. Um, I'll start with you, Sarah, because you raised it to begin with. So, and you're nodding, so you look as if you might be able to answer. <laughs> yeah, I will start, but I'm really interested in other people's views on this. So um, this is an area that has received a lot of attention since the end of the transition period. And there've been some quite significant headlines like London losing um, its share trading lead in Europe to Amsterdam, for example. So um, I think it's undoubtedly true that the trade and cooperation agreement, the Brexit trade deal, doesn't do very much to support financial services. And in some ways, that's not surprising because trade deals don't typically. But I think that does pose some important questions for the UK, given the fact that our economy has relied really significantly on financial services. There have, there have been um, and continue to be um, what I think is more of a kind of leaky pipe or a slow puncture rather than a, a kind of um, crashing out of financial services activity from London to Europe. I don't see it in quite those terms. So, for example, um, I think the latest estimates are around 7,000 jobs have left London um, due to Brexit around um, financial services. I think there's a couple of key points here. Um, one is that they're not all moving to the same European centre. So we're seeing fragmentation of this activity across Europe. So for example, banks seem to be um, uh, prioritising moving to Frankfurt, asset management to, to Amsterdam. The net impact of that on London is quite important because it suggests that London may be smaller, but remain Europe's largest financial centre, at least for some time. Um, but that being said, I would really return to Jonathan and David's earlier comments that it's very early for us to assess what the medium and longer term impacts on the city will be. And also by extension, what that will mean for the rest of the UK economy. So here, I think we need to not forget that um, the financial services tax take has been quite significant um, for the UK. So a smaller 
financial services sector has ramifications beyond London and the South East. Thank you. Can I follow up on that? Some of Sarah's really interesting work is about other cities uh, in the UK and, and how they've developed financial services. So, um, you know, here in Birmingham, the big effort is to try and reorientate the city towards financial services. And part of the whole reason for, in as far as there's a, a rationale for high speed too, is essentially make Birmingham a kind of offshoot of the city. Um, so it's really interesting to see how Brexit not only impacts on financial services in London, but also places like Birmingham. And I know Sarah's done doing loads of really interesting work on this, but it, it does pose a really big question for uh, local enterprise partnerships, combined authorities, which had been going for financial services in a big way as to how this is now going to affect them as well. We don't know the answer to that yet. Sorry, Meredith, I was going to bring you in there as well, see if you had anything that you wanted to add. Not, not particularly, yeah, not okay. especially. No, no, that's fine. Jonathan, did you have anything to add specifically on the City of London? <laughs> okay, then, I will move us on to some other questions. Some of them are now quite specific in terms of focus, so please just feel free if, if, if it's not something you feel you can speak to just to say, no, I don't want to speak about that. Um, so, um, one very specific one, which I found a fascinating question asked earlier in the week, was how the um, failure to, to provide recognition for professional qualifications um, from the EU might affect different sectors. Um, the, the person um, writing the question specifically mentioned the NHS, law and finance, but I suspect it affects a really broad range of sectors. And I found that a fascinating question, so I thought maybe you could throw some light on that for us. Well, I mean, we can throw some light, but not, uh, I suspect, answer, you know, um, specific questions, because the, the point is, it depends, um, you know, to, uh, um, in principle, there are provisions for the mutual recognition of professional qualifications, but that's subject to the policies of 27 member states. This is the problem with one of the problems with being a third country, um, outside of a single market where when you're in the single market, then um, that mutual recognition and mutual rules means countries have to behave, have to recognize each other's rules and, and, and basically treat everything as equivalent. But for in areas which are not um, solely the competence of the EU to set the regulations in the first place, um, when you're outside um, the, uh, the, the, that single market area. It's not a question of getting the EU to recognize that you're equivalent or that you're qualified equivalent. It's a question of getting an individual member state. So, I mean, I, I don't quote me on the precise details here, but in principle, it might be possible to practice as an accountant um, in uh, Germany, but not in Bulgaria or vice versa. Um, and if you were trying to seek to practice across all 27 member states, you might have to investigate the, the regulations in each of those. Whereas if you're, when you're in the EU, you know that your British qualification will be recognized across every member state. So it's not just that, we, that, 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 that being outside is different. It means that being outside, you have to, be, you have to treat the EU as um, both one block, but also as 27 countries. When, when you're in it, you don't have to worry about that so much. So there are some potentially 
very large complications and obstacles here to, to people seeking to, to, to use their professional status um, uh, to, to sell their, their services across the EU. Can I just, again, jump in? That also applies to manufacturing. Modern manufacturing often provides services as well as making something. So this horrible term servitization I've used before. So, But increasingly, manufacturers will face this struggle of dealing with 27 different countries. So if you're not only making something and exporting, but then providing a maintenance contract or something alongside that, that you've got to deal with lots of different countries and look at the visa implications. That links back to the point that Sarah was making earlier. So there isn't a clear divide increasingly between manufacturing and services. So even though the trade deal eliminates tariffs and quotas, many manufacturers do services. So life becomes more complicated for them. Meredith, did you want to add something on that one? Um, just saying, I think, you know, sooner or later, the mutual recognition of qualifications is going to get sorted out because individuals who want to provide, say, accounting services, and they had been doing it a lot in the European Union, you know, there's a sort of fixed cost of making sure that you achieve the, the qualification and that you verify your qualifications, et cetera. But then we run into the problem of um, visas. And so that, in a sense, there's sort of two layers to this problem for professionals, you know, so like accountants, lawyers, engineers. One is that you need to be able to provide your service legally in the place you're going to. The second one is you need the country to give you a visa to go there. Um, and so this is, there's two different levels there. And I think one of the issues is for many um, businesses, you know, and this is where you might have a, a loss or an outflow of, of service jobs from the UK. So if you have, say, a team of accountants based in the UK, and they had been providing services to businesses based in France, or et cetera, it might be that that company just decides, okay, we need to expand our entire accounting outfit in France now, rather than in the UK. And so you see sort of, you could, which could be people from the UK moving to France, or it could just be a re removal of jobs here, an expansion of jobs um, within France. So that's that's an issue. And the other thing I was just going to say is there was a question about, you know, how could this impact the NHS? In a sense, Britain has its own standards for, you know, medical service professionals, and they can still apply those. And it's up to the government to decide how they want to allocate the visas. So, for example, they can allocate the visas to professional nurses from within the European Union or other countries outside the European Union. But I think we have a lot of control over that process. So I don't think that that's something that I would worry about too much in terms of potential things like nursing shortages, because that's something where this country, you can just, as soon as you're able to, you can change your qualification standards here, you can change your visa rules um, as necessary. Thank you. Um, I'm going to pick that one up. I, I'll come to Sarah in a minute on this one as well, but I wanted to pick that one up because there's another question, which is kind of the flip side of, of what you're explaining there. And that was about how industries that were relying on EU workers to, to grow and, and bring those workers in, how they might be affected by all this as well. Um, and I know, Jonathan, you've been doing quite a lot of analysis of the flows of people out of the country over the last few months. So maybe you could speak a little bit to that as the kind of flip side of that of that issue? Um, so we know that we've seen um, a, a really quite unprecedented exodus of, of um, um, 
non-UK-born workers, in particular Europeans, during the crisis. Unfortunately, because of, um, as, as uh, um, Sarah referred to earlier, the, uh, um, the end of the, the, the discontinuation of the International Passenger Survey, we really have, uh, um, don't have a good fix on just how big those numbers are, but we do know those are big. And in the short term, maybe that's not such a bad thing, because of course, you know, that just reflects the fact that large um, parts of the economy have, have shut down. The question is what happens during the recovery um, and do we begin to see um, labor um, shortages emerge? Now, I think one point that is important to make here is that you know, um, the, the new immigration system, which was introduced on the 1st of January, is not a, um, you know, it, it does not represent a sort of radically restrictionist policy as, as Theresa May wanted. It's actually something in between. It's considerably more restrictionist and harder to get in if you're coming from Europe, but it's actually significantly more liberal and easier to get in if you're coming from outside Europe. And we don't know yet how that's going to balance out. This is one area actually where the impacts of COVID on the labor market and hence on labor demand and the impacts of the change to the um, migration system resulting from Brexit are going to be really, really hard to disentangle. And we certainly won't have the answers uh, um, even in the first year as to what the long-term impacts are. Um, there are almost certainly going to be some sectors where, which have become quite reliant on specifically EU origin labor, um, where there are going to be significant impacts. Um, and those range from uh, um, you know, agriculture uh, um, to social care, and uh, uh, um, in particular, um, where there are almost certainly going to be some quite significant pressures. Um, and then there are areas where it's harder to tell. Um, uh, um, higher education and finance, for example, where you have both quite large numbers of Europeans, but also non-European migrants working. And so how will that balance out? Um, will we see staff and skill shortages emerging? I think it is quite possible that we will do so if, if, if indeed we have a relatively strong recovery in the labor market. But unpicking those different factors is going to be quite difficult. Thank you. I, I was about to bring Sarah in, but we've lost her for a moment. So I'll come back to her when. Ah, Sarah, are you there? <laughs> I wasn't sure if yes, you wanted to. I'm here. The points that Jonathan was making there. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. Oh, I think we've lost Sarah again. Um, we'll move on and I'll come back. I'll come back to Sarah in a minute. So I think there's a danger or not a danger that some of our questions are picking up that this has sort of been fairly pessimistic so far um, and one of the questions that somebody wanted us to address was whether anything that's happened over the last 12 months has made you um, more um, optimistic about things that we might be able to do as a result of Brexit has have you seen any upsides I suppose is one very blunt way of putting the question <laughs> I think Sarah is still there. So maybe I'll go to Sarah first and then she can fill in with anything else that she wanted to add on the previous question at the same time. Sarah? Yes, yes I am here. Um, so I think um, one of the big areas that, that I'm interested in is what it means in terms of financial services regulation. So it is true that Brexit gives the UK the opportunity to regulate financial services in the ways that it feels most appropriate 
for a large international financial centre. Um, and you could argue that there are opportunities there because London is different and substantially larger in terms of liquidity and international reach compared with other European financial centres. And we've seen some indications of some of the changes that the UK is wanting to make in this area. So um, on budget day, in fact, there's announcements about changes to the listings regimes on stock exchanges in London um, or proposals for those um, aimed at, in some ways, um, making London's financial services regulatory area in that domain a little bit closer to that in New York. So I think um, it's very early to think about what some of the kind of um, benefits will be for financial services, but we're just starting now, I think, to see articulations of how the government intends to use some of this newfound regulatory um, freedom. Thank you. Anyone else want to add to that one or are you all just completely pessimistic you don't see that. I mean I think you know I mentioned immigration before I mean uh, there there's lots to worry about in the new immigration system but the system that we have now is considerably more liberal um, and uh, um, less restrictionist um, than the one that Theresa May would have wanted and which was being proposed um, two years ago um, so uh, um, so I think that is uh, and, on, and, and that's even before you consider um, the, uh, um, the, the government's policy towards people coming here from Hong Kong, which, you know, uh, it, it clearly we could have done that in principle if uh, um, inside or outside the EU, because we always had control over immigration policy towards people coming from outside the EU. Um, but to the extent that in a broader political context, it, it's the government trying to be seen as more global, outward oriented, um, you can at least relate that to Brexit, and that's clearly something that that I think is, uh, you know, a, uh, um, a, a, re a fairly radical um, policy, a break with the policy of, of previous governments, in particular, a break with the policy of Mrs. Thatcher, who set her face against doing any such thing at the time that Hong Kong, the, of, of the discussions over Hong Kong's reversion to China, um, and something which potentially would have quite major economic and social implications. Um, so there are, I think, uh, you know, there, there are reasons to be, uh, uh, um, uh, why, why, why I might be somewhat more optimistic um, than, than, than a couple of years ago. I mean, I think there's one obvious reason to be pessimistic, which is, you know, that the government has, you know, leaving aside the, you know, abstracting from the provisions, the law of the UK EU TCA, the government has clearly decided to use the EU, you know, at the moment, the, both the government and the EU are regarding the, the ETA in a confrontational um, and legalistic frame rather than as a platform to build on. And I think I said on one of these events six months ago that one of the reasons for, you know, why even a, a thin deal, which didn't do a huge amount on paper, was a lot better than no deal was because it would provide a platform to build on as opposed to an inevitable spiral of confrontation and, and blaming the other side. Um, and uh, so far, I think I'd have to say that that judgment does not look particularly uh, uh, um, good in retrospect, to be absolutely honest. Uh, um, maybe, uh, 
maybe things will change, but at the moment, uh, I'm not feeling too happy with that particular uh, prediction. Just um, sort of very quickly, in terms of uh, ways to be optimistic, I mean, we, we face big challenges around getting to net zero, the impact of what's called Industry 4.0. There are also opportunities. Um, so how we create our regulations around driverless vehicles, for example, to encourage testing and investment in the UK, we, we have a, a bit more flexibility. We've taken back some degree of sovereignty. And more generally, in terms of government intervention in the economy, the line previously was often, well, we can't do that because of state aid rules. In fact, we could have done a lot more if we'd wanted to intervene in the economy because other European countries do. But the government's got nobody to blame anymore. You know, we, the government can't say, oh, we can't do that because of state aid regulations, notwithstanding the level playing field provisions within the agreement. So I think there is more scope for the government to be more creative about how it intervenes in the, in the economy if it is serious about, say, getting to net zero, that, of course, requires some pretty fundamental changes, Jonathan said, in terms of the role of the Treasury. Meredith, have you got any reasons for optimism? I mean, I, I not really. I mean, I think it depends exactly what you mean, you know, where Jonathan's pointing out, well, the last 12 months showed a better immigration policy than we may have envisioned three years ago. I mean, the reality is Brexit is introducing costs for lots of businesses. And it is a positive that we did get a TCA, which will govern future trade relationships. But it's also a bit of a, you know, some of the information coming out has actually been, to my mind, a bit negative on how well government prepared businesses. You know, and so the, all of the little logistical problems of such things as needing to pay value added tax in the European Union, small and medium sized businesses not knowing how to do that and not having the liquid funds available to make those payments in order to engage in exporting. And so it seems to me there was some scope for, you know, greater government support in helping small businesses continue to export in the face of these kinds of changes in tax rules. And a very, you know, that's a transaction cost. It just throws sand in the wheels of trade. And it seems like in some sense, you know, if this is literally, these firms were always paying value added tax on things they made in the UK. When they exported them, the UK government with the foreign government within the EU would reconcile all of their value added tax that needed to be paid in the European country. Now these country, these individual firms are having to step in directly and pay first value added tax in the UK. And then before they get a rebate on exporting, there seems like they're having to put forward the value added tax a second time to the European government. And this is this is just a it's just pure wasteful cost. And it's a little disappointing that we didn't have better advice available, that we don't have hotlines paid for where businesses can call up and get the kind of you know greater support they need during this transition. So I hope in the longer run, there is more effort put into smoothing these things over for business so that we don't end up killing a lot of, of very good companies within this country, especially the smaller ones, which always have these tax, you know, these small cash flow issues are much, much bigger to the viability of the business. I'm not sure if Sarah's there or not to bring on to bring in on that one. <laughs> don't think she's there right at the moment. Um, so we're getting closer 
quite close to the end of the session and I am aware there are a lot of questions come in that we haven't been able to address and some of those I'm deliberately um, steering clear of because they're not the expertise of our particular panel um, I wanted just to briefly direct people to the UK and a changing Europe website, the explainers and reports and things there. Many of the questions that are popping up in the chat, you can find answers to um, on the website. Um, and so do, if I haven't been able to get to your question, um, do pop onto there. I think Sarah's there now. So I'm just going to pop that, that question that I just asked about whether, there, whether she sees reasons for optimism um, back to her in case there was anything else she wanted to add. If not, I'll, I'll move on. I'm on that one, Paul. Thank you. So I want to leave a few minutes at the end for your kind of slightly longer term reflections of where we might all be when we do this again in six to 12 months time. So I'll tell you that I'm going to ask you that one now so that you can be preparing answers. And in the meantime, just ask one final question that had popped up during the during the sessions over the week, which is, can you tell us a little bit about the trends we've seen in foreign investment um, post-Brexit? I don't know who's the best person to pick that one up first. Um, whoever waves at me first, I think I'll go to. Um, anybody want to pick that one up? Um, so there's been some interesting work done on this by um, Nigel Driffield at Warwick University. And he, he basically said the uncertainty around Brexit, um, even before the, the actual uh, UK leaving, had a negative impact on investment in the UK. The UK is still an attractive place, but not as attractive as a place to come as a foothold into Europe, into the EU. So that, that's uh, going to have a negative impact. And then the, the, the longer term issues are, 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 as we said right at the beginning, are yet to unfold. We know that companies are having to kind of rethink their value chains. They will do that over time. There will be some firms invest in the UK for the UK market, given that trade is now more difficult. There'll be others that will go the other way and invest in the EU because they, they want value chains there to avoid trade friction. My guess is certainly manufacturing, the size of the second one is going to outweigh the first one so that we're, we're going to see a, a net negative from Brexit on investment in manufacturing, partly because of the difficulties now of doing trade. So you know the UK is going to have to work harder in terms of trying to think about keeping the UK an attractive place for investment. Uh, but also using an investment in regions in terms of promoting economic development. And that's going to require, you know, I, I know I keep going on about this, more of a regionally based industrial policy to make the most of that. Thank you. Meredith? Well, just to add on, um, you know, I think David's correct in that uncertainty was a big in reason why foreign investors would be a little bit more hesitant to invest in the UK over the last say five years because they were never, it was not clear whether or not they would, if they were producing something, be able to export it to the EU tariff free. An additional thing though, we have to, you know, we now have a new, you know, the super investment regime where if you invest in the UK, whether you're a domestically based firm or a foreign firm, you've got this very um, favorable tax treatment that's been introduced. And so, you know, there's two ways to think about it. One is it's a very sensible policy if you want to bring in private enterprise and private investment. On the other hand, the very fact that this is necessary may, you know, is, is a little bit of a downside of Brexit. So the tax revenue we might have earned if we had not 
left the EU. We're now having, in order to track that investment, it looks like the government's own assessment is, you know, if we want that investment, we need to reduce tax rates on it below those of, of rival countries. And so, you know, we're getting, we might still be able to attract the investment despite, you know, continued uncertainty over things like how the TCA will be implemented and enforced. But we're always going to be, you know, this investment is now coming in with a much smaller tax bill associated with it, which means that there is less money to build the roads to those factories. There's less money to educate the people who will go to work in those new businesses. So that's, that's you know, a difficulty, um, the tension. You're on mute, Paula. Thank you. <laughs> You're bound to do it at least once during the session. Um, Sarah or Jonathan, did you want to add anything to that? Oh. Perfect. Then I'm going to move us on to our kind of final thoughts to wrap up the week. Um, I think the sessions this week have been absolutely fantastic and I'd like to thank all of our experts across all of the different panels. I've also found this panel um, particularly surprising in some ways because I was always taught it was very difficult to get economists to agree with each other and you all seem to agree with each other really quite well. Um, but I wanted to, to round up really thinking about, you know, assuming we do a week like this um, focusing on economics again in six or 12 months time, what different things might we be talking about? How things, how different might things look? Um, what, what do you see on the horizon over that period? Um, and Sarah, because I know you're absolutely there at the moment, I'm going to go to you first. <laughs> yes, my apologies. Um, there's three things that I would draw attention to here. So the first is that if the vaccine programme continues to run well, in six to 12 months time, I think we will be starting to have a much better sense of what Brexit means for mobility. Um, so I think we will be better able to see how the TCA works in terms of business travel to Europe and the impact of that on services. Um, it's a really complex part of the deal as Jonathan alluded to, and I think it's really vital because of the way in which services are traded. The two other areas that I hope we will have more information on is the extent to which um, in services, but particularly in financial services, a lot's been made of the ability of London to substitute lost EU trade with global trade, um, particularly actually focusing, I think, on Asia. Um, at the moment, the US actually looks to be doing very well out of Brexit on financial services. So in six to 12 months time, I'll be interested to see more data on um, the extent to which London is able to um, attract other international markets, particularly in financial services. And finally, um, I hope we have more data and analysis on the regional implications of Brexit um, and what that means for regional economic growth. Thank you. I'll go to David next. I think Sarah summarised that extremely well. So we, we hopefully will have a better idea of the, the impacts of COVID. Hopefully we should be well into a recovery then if the vaccine programme continues well. But there, there will be some places and sectors still affected by it because COVID has accelerated shifts in the economy more broadly, like shift to online shopping, which is impacting on high street retail, for example. Um, so a, a better understanding of the impacts of COVID and Brexit on sectors and on places 
Um, and in terms of the, my own work with the UK and a change in Europe, I think we might have a better idea of to what extent manufacturing can actually live with the agreement that exists. Now, that agreement obviously eliminates tariffs and quotas as long as rules of origin rules are complied with. But there's still lots of extra non-tariff uh, barriers, sort of barriers for manufacturing in terms of customs, in terms of rules of origin rules, and so on. So you know, there are some big investment decisions coming up in UK manufacturing, like the case of the car company Stellantis at Ellesmere Port, and there are others coming down the line. So we'll have a better idea to what extent manufacturing can actually live with the deal and how it will impact on the restructuring of supply chains. Thank you. I'll go to Meredith next, I think. So I think um, in you know six or 12 months time, we'll have a better sense of how, how the economy responds to coming out of this uh, COVID recession. In particular, we'll be able to see, um, so I think one of the questions that's gonna come next is, is the bounce back as good as it is because of Brexit or because of you know something else where I'm sure there'll be some politicians saying, oh, our, you know, our, our growth post COVID is stronger because we're not inside the European Union. So we'll have some questions about, you know, what factors such as like investment, you know, accelerated uh, depreciation, et cetera, were contributing to that. I think one of the things I'll be curious about is to see how this affects sort of small and medium sized firms and what impact it has on the dynamism of these smaller firms that contribute to the overall economy. So coming out of recessions as, as business cycles um, start to take off, we often see in most economies, a lot of entry of new businesses. And so there'll be a question of, do we see that domestically entry of new businesses? What types of businesses will they be? In what sectors? And then on the export you know, and trade growth side, we see a lot of firms as the world comes out of a recession beginning to export. And I think one of the questions I'll have in my mind is will we see as many firms starting to export now that we're no longer in the European Union as we did say back in you know, previous um, recoveries from recessions. So in early periods going back to some of the great trade collapse, you know, the growth of, of exporting firms in say 2010, something like that. So I think there'll be an interesting comparison to see how damaging or not damaging this post-Brexit trade relationship is with the EU in terms of how vibrantly we, we respond to the end of the, the COVID recession. Thank you. And um, Jonathan, last but not least, the final word. <laughs> um, so um, it, uh, I agree with all that. I'd just add that we would we should also in six to of have a much better idea of whether this huge shock to immigration and population is permanent, whether this is a sort of a genuine step change down in, in the, uh, um, uh, uh, the, the, the contribution immigration makes to the UK's economy and, and labor market, um, or whether it's a, a blip that, that is going to largely come back. Um, the second point I'd make is that in six to 12 months, I think there is a very real possibility that we will, following on from my previous answer, be engaged in something uh, like a low-level trade war with the EU, um, where uh, we there, there's a report in the FT today about possible ways in which the EU could retaliate, retaliate across the spectrum of the trade relationship for the UK's breach of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, and it's 
you know, one uh, um, trade wars are, are very easy to win, as Donald Trump said. Um, well, in fact, trade wars are relatively easy to start, um, but quite hard to stop. And typically, no one wins. Um, both sides lose. Um, and uh, I think it's quite possible that we, we could be heading in, in that quite dangerous direction. You know, not a fully fledged blockade on either side, but, but a continued escalation of, of, of retaliatory measures. And that has the potential to be quite damaging over and beyond the provisions of the PTA itself. Thank you. And brilliantly timed because we are at the end of the session. I'd also like to add to my, my final thought to all that is that, of course, exactly how all that then becomes framed in our politics um, by people who have interest in making one or the other argument is also going to be a fascinating thing to watch over the next 12 months. To keep following those issues, of course, keep following UK in a change in Europe, our blogs, our reports and our research will be tackling these issues continuously um, over the next 12 months. Thank you again to all our panellists. I am much wiser at the end of that hour than I was at the start. Um, thank you all very, very much. And thank you to the audience that's watched and given us such wonderful questions to ask um, right the way through the week. Uh, also, one final thank you to the team behind the scenes that make all these wonderful things happen, make the techno technology work and get a Sarah back when she disappears. So thank you. <laughs> thank you very much to everybody that's taken part in this in this week.